if it is possible for a book to give us a, a tangible sense of, of an experience that one has never had, I think I had it with a book called Shadow Divers, The True Adventure of Two Americans Who Risked Everything to Solve One of the Last Mysteries of World War II, written by Robert Curson. I have never been diving. I never <laughs> planned to dive, but I feel like, in a sense, I have done so in reading this vividly written book, uh, which tells us so much about the experience of diving and especially of the especially dangerous task of diving into wrecks. And uh, that is what uh, this story is all about, a riveting true story. And uh, I'm really grateful to Robert Curson for writing this uh, fascinating book. Uh, he has been a uh, uh, a writer for the Chicago Sun-Times, Chicago Magazine, for Esquire uh, Magazine as contributing editor. He lives actually not far from here in the suburbs of Chicago, and I understand that he was uh, a graduate of the University of Wisconsin. So um, we are talking to uh, a Midwesterner through and through. And Robert Curson, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Is that Madison where you attended the University of Wisconsin? W. Madison. It's where I became a Packers fan and a Brewers fan as well. Very good. Glad to hear that. And uh, where exactly in the Chicago land do you live now? I live in the northern suburbs, so uh, pretty much almost as close in terms of driving time to Milwaukee as to downtown Chicago. Very good. It's a great place to live, isn't it? It is. Yes. Uh, what first uh, interested you in this particular story of these uh, courageous divers exploring this particular mystery? Well, on the surface, it seemed like a story that was too unbelievable to be true. Here you had two regular guys who held full-time jobs in New Jersey who dove recreationally on the weekend for shipwrecks. And one day in 1991, they discover a World War II German U-boat just 60 miles off the coast of New Jersey in a depth of 230 feet in the Atlantic. There are 56 dead Nazi sailors inside this boat. And no government, Navy, expert, or historian in the world has any idea which U-boat this is, who the dead sailors inside are, or how it got to New Jersey. And even more amazing, nobody in the world can ponder in any way how this U-boat uh, got to within 100 miles of this location. Everybody insists it simply cannot be there, and yet there it is. Hmm. How, did, how did this story cross your path personally? It was a stroke of luck for me. A friend of mine had heard about uh, John Chatterton and Richie Kohler, the two divers at the center of this adventure, and had alerted me to the story. I took it from there and just looked them up in the phone book, literally, and dialed them and asked if I could hear their story. And they said, we're barbecuing this Saturday. We're riding motorcycles. Come by and hang out, and uh, you can hear everything. We'll tell you everything. And I did that. I flew to New Jersey, expected to stay for two hours, Fourteen hours later, I was still listening, not just to a story of a world-class mystery, but to a story about the lives of two incredible men. Hmm. Something else you do in this book, which I think is of such great service to us, is that we are, are given something of a history of this kind of diving. And uh, I think that's really helpful because I had made the rather foolish assumption at some point along the way that uh, that much of this had been done for many, many years. And in fact, this is a, a relatively new uh, undertaking, particularly the diving into wrecks in this kind of a way. And because it is such a, a, a new undertaking, it is especially dangerous. Yes, human beings have no business being at 230 feet 
deep in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, biology is not created to withstand that kind of environment. And there are so many things that can happen to you in a moment's notice with no warning uh, that can kill you in this sport that if you're in it for any amount of time at all, you'll either see someone die, come close to dying yourself, or die yourself. And the consequences of a single mistake are so grave that it's difficult at times to say which of those three outcomes is worst. These guys who are in this sport see people die all the time, and they come close to dying all the time. Uh, there are dangers at that depth that nobody can imagine. This sport bears very little resemblance to the resort area warm water scuba diving you and I are so familiar with. It's just a much different animal. Right. And one of the things you say is that because the sport is so new, uh, there is no ancient wisdom to be passed from father to son, the kind of collective experience that routinely keeps today's divers alive. Or we should say that wasn't so much the case now, but it was when uh, this was first seriously undertaken by uh, someone named Bill Nagel, one of the first people we meet uh, in this book. Uh, those that first began exploring shipwrecks were uh, doing so very much at their own peril, with not very much collective experience behind them to help them contend with whatever might surprise them. That's true. Think about this, that these guys are looking for shipwrecks that have never been discovered before. And when they find them, there's nobody there to tell them, well, when you turn left inside the first porthole, uh, the wall has collapsed, so you have to wiggle right and then up a little bit or that uh, a staircase has collapsed and now leads to nowhere instead of to somewhere. Those are the kinds of bits of wisdom that in known wrecks could be transmitted from one diver to the other. But these divers, including Chatterton and Kohler, are pushing into places no one has ever seen before. They're different from the day that the ships left because the ships are now sunk and they're, uh, in the case of the U-boat, destroyed by some violent event so that places don't exist where they used to exist. Left is right and up is down. So that they're swimming into... Um, not only places that have never been seen before, but which no longer make sense. And when you do that at that kind of depth, where people don't belong anyway, and it's dark, and silk clouds start to rise with your every move, you can see why many of these guys never come back from these kinds of adventures. Hmm. One of the things you say early on is that to fishermen, shipwrecks mean life. And I think what you're saying is that it is often around these shipwrecks, whatever kind of vessel has gone down, that all kinds of, of marine life will spring up in, uh, in extraordinary number and, and abundance. Is, is that what you're saying there? That's exactly right. That it's kind of cyclical in that way, that the ship has met the end of its life, and whoever's aboard may have met the end of their life, but that marine life then springs up around it. And that's how this wreck was discovered. A fisherman came across this site... He saw something on his bottom finder, some big mass of, me of metal, uh, but all he knew is that uh, the tuna and the cod and the pollock seemed to leap onto his poles uh, in numbers that he'd never seen. So it was a wonderful bounty for him, but something was pinging in his instinct. He knew there was something down there. He realized that it was probably just a junky pipe barge or garbage barge, but he had to know. Hmm. And that's when he went to Bill Nagel. Let me just jump in. Uh, you mentioned in passing something quite fascinating to me. You said that one of the things this could possibly have been was a subway car, saying that the state of New Jersey apparently had sunk some of them on purpose to actually help promote marine life. What a fascinating thing to do. That's exactly right. And not only New Jersey, other states do that. They sink uh, subway cars, they sink garbage barges for precisely that purpose, to promote marine growth. And they don't keep great records of it, so it's possible that you'd run across these kinds of things, especially if you're dragging a net or if you're a fisherman out 
in these areas. What's not possible is that it's a German U-boat with a full crew on board that nobody in the world has any clue about. That's the impossible. Hmm. And yet that's exactly what this turns out to be. We're speaking with Robert Curson. His book is called Shadow Divers. Let's talk for a moment more about what makes uh, diving into shipwrecks so uh, uh, incredibly uh, difficult. We should mention, too, that there are not many people that do deep wreck diving. You, you say it is a minuscule percentage of the world's 20 million or so certified scuba divers. Not too many are <laughs> foolish enough, maybe, to uh, undertake this uh, incredibly dangerous activity. Yeah, I don't even know if foolish is the right word. Crazy enough. Um, this, is, this requires you to be hardwired against millions of years of evolutionary instinct. When you're that deep, you can't simply surface if something goes wrong. You have to come up slowly and decompress at predetermined stops. That means if you're drowning, if you're lost, if you can't breathe, if anything goes wrong, you can't simply shoot for the sunshine and seagulls, as they say. You must stay under the water and solve the problem. That requires a very special breed of individuals. So, while there are about 10 million certified scuba divers in the United States and maybe 20 million worldwide, perhaps fewer than 200 do this kind of deep water shipwreck diving in the United States because the depth is too dangerous. And even if you overcome the depth, you then end up swimming into these wrecks that are twisted against nature and really seem designed just to pluck you out and uh, drown you or make you go lost until you run out mm. of air. You, you liken at one point to uh, a diver getting lost in a shipwreck to be... Uh, as someone being caught in like a carnival funhouse, uh, I mean, sort of absurdly put together where the doorways don't lead any place, and, and of course, in, in almost no time, someone can die. The other thing, too, that you mentioned is that when we are at depths uh, this great, we're often talking about divers uh, whose judgment and, and motor skills will be uh, uh, impaired by something called nitrogen narcosis. Yes, that's the other of the big dangers of diving this deep. When you go down that deep and you breathe air, as these guys were doing in 1991, uh, the nitrogen builds up in your bloodstream and it fogs the judgment centers and motor skill centers of your brain. It makes giant catastrophes seem like niggling annoyances, and niggling annoyances seem like catastrophes. You can hear things and see things. Many of these divers, uh, when they begin to panic or when things go wrong, will see, for example, crabs come out of the sand and talk to them and beckon them forward. Come with me. Come with me. That's what they're fighting against. So not only do they have to battle biology on the bottom, and not only do they have to navigate these very twisted shipwrecks, which are like fun houses where things don't make sense anymore. There could be a bathtub on the wall. They have to do so against the effects of narcosis. It's very dangerous, and should something go wrong, the narcosis starts to pound and crescendo so that more things start to go wrong, and the snowball builds, and the snowball is often the last thing a diver experiences. Mm. You talk about how... (laughs) When we look at the outside of a typical shipwreck, uh, it makes a a certain amount uh, of sense. You say if the ocean is perilous outside the wreck, at least it is consistent and extends in all directions. But inside the wreck, where chaos is architect, dangers come camouflaged in every crevice. Bad happens suddenly. For many, the inside of a shipwreck is the most dangerous place they will ever go. Absolutely true. And exactly the reason why, if you stay in the sport for any length of time, you're going to end up going inside a shipwreck, not to explore anymore, but to go retrieve your friend. It's just insanely dangerous. Mm. The places don't make sense. And there are things on the walls there of broken shipwrecks. Remember, the divers are wearing 175 to 200 pounds of gear. 
all that is prime candidate to get hooked up onto one of these jagged edges or wires and just marionette a wreck diver into the into the ship until he runs out of air and drowns. Mm. You say that uh, if if a diver gets into trouble, it's not that they, their their calls of panic won't be heard. You can hear things underwater, but that sound travels basically in a directionless fashion. So I- even if you heard another diver calling for help, that doesn't mean you would have any sense of where that sound was coming from. And so finding another diver in trouble is, is, is a problem. You also say that in this kind of diving, uh, people don't dive with a partner in pairs, as is more typical with regular scuba diving. Explain why that is. Because in regular scuba diving, if something goes wrong, if you get tangled or you get lost or something malfunctions in your, your setup, your buddy um, can help you and guide you to the surface or can help untangle you. There's no problem. Down deep, where you cannot shoot to the surface, where you must solve the problem underwater and where panic is the king, diving with someone else is more dangerous to the other person than it is to you oftentimes. If you can't breathe at that depth and you have nowhere to go, you are very likely, for example, to try to rip the regulator out of your buddy's mouth. It's, it's nature. It's instinct. And so people try to stay away from each other. If you get lost inside a shipwreck and you're relying on a buddy, that buddy now has to swim inside a shipwreck, which not only doesn't make sense anymore because of its shape, but also probably is black as night because of the silt clouds that have billowed from your own activity. So that diving with someone else at those depths and in those kinds of conditions and in those shipwrecks is very dangerous because the one diver's danger will oftentimes become your own danger. So these, for that reason, many of these guys go by themselves. Hmm. It's interesting. You paint us a portrait of, of very contrasting figures in that some of these people that undertake shipwreck diving are really doing it uh, out of, in some cases, sheer greed more than anything. Uh, I mean, really going after buried treasure in a sense, and others are, are going after it almost like a pirate with a kind of cavalier attitude towards danger. And then there are others who undertake this in a much more thoughtful kind of way and uh, careful to analyze the situation as much as they can before they ever enter the shipwreck. And certainly in the case of John Chatterton, we are talking about such a diver doing his homework and trying to be as careful as possible so that when he enters the wreck, he knows as much as possible about what is where and where he's going to find what he's looking for. That's exactly right, and that's why by 1991, John Chatterton, who hadn't been in the sport as long as many of his colleagues, was already considered one of the greats in the world because he treated diving as an art and as something to be undertaken with beauty and with excellence, that uh, he cared very little for the artifacts. How many teacups did one grown man need, he would say. Uh, but it was all about the approach, about the principles of life being applied to diving and seeing both come to fruition. Mm. That it was about homework and preparation and knowledge and beauty. So uh, he was the king, really. Um, Richie Kohler, who would be his partner in this, was much different than John Chatterton was. He uh, cared much more for the artifacts. He was a member of the fabled and notorious dive gang, the Atlantic Wreck Divers. And there were dive gangs on the Atlantic coast in those days. He cared a lot for the artifacts, and he cared much more about having fun during diving than Chatterton did. To him, diving was as much about having a good time with the guys and camaraderie as it was about exploring shipwrecks. It didn't make him any less a great diver than Chatterton, just that they had different sensibilities, and they hated each other for it. They despised each other personally. 
Well, especially early on, uh, we get a sense that they developed a, 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 at least a grudging respect and admiration for one another as, as this undertaking went forward. Yes, neither wanted to be with the other at all, but when Chatterton and Kohler each recognized in the other that this had become something much more personal and deep uh, than just about rewriting history, that to each of them this had become a defining moment in life, that one moment in a person's life, if he's lucky, will get to truly know himself by how he acquits himself at the, life, at the time when uh, the moment most matters. Hmm. You know, most of us never get that chance. We theorize about who we are, but we never really test it. And they both came to believe that this was their test and that they'd forever know who they were based on how they behaved. Once they understood that about each other, they began not only uh, to respect each other, but to like and even love each other and to be willing to die for each other in this pursuit. We're speaking with Robert Curson. His book is called Shadow Divers. Um, this shipwreck, which they do explore, I think it's uh, on Labor Day, 1991, and actually at that point it's John Chatterton and Bill Nagel. We should mention that Bill Nagel was uh, an employee of Snap-on Tools located right here in Kenosha. That's um, That they, uh, uh, Mr. Chatterton enters this wreck, and uh, the determination is eventually made that not only is this a submarine, but this is a German submarine. Tell our listeners how he was able to make that determination. Well, Chatterton's uh, full-time day job was as a commercial hard-hat diver. That meant he did underwater construction jobs in and around Manhattan. So he understood the degradation and properties of metal. So when he saw this and understood this to be a submarine because he saw a torpedo inside, he then started to examine the uh, metal and understood this to be World War II era. He knew his ocean and he knew his history books. And more than he knew his name, he knew there could not be any submarines within 100 miles of this location. Very quickly, he discovered a dinner plate inside the wreck. And on the back of that plate was engraved the eagle and swastika and the year 1942. At that point, it seemed truly impossible. A World War II German U-boat 60 miles off the coast of New Jersey. There was no question as to its lineage. The only question was, which boat was this and who were all these dead bodies inside. You give us some uh, interesting description of German U-boats and the important role which they played in uh, the Second World War. You say at one point Germany assembled a force of 1,167 U-boats. And uh, so this was a, a formidable force uh, in, in, in the Second World War. And the idea that, that many of them were lurking so close off of our coast uh, is, is a frightening thing to, to, to ponder. Yes, and especially in the beginning of the war, when the U-boat force was much smaller, they, were, uh, they struck fear into the hearts of those who really knew. It was believed by the experts that this small U-boat force could go a long way towards ruling the world. That's how dangerous they were, and that's how unstoppable they were. We had no answer to them in the early part of the war, and they came to within a mile or two of our shores with impunity, they would come and raise their radio antennas and tune in New York jazz stations to listen and dance to the music they loved so much, but which was forbidden to them back in Nazi Germany. They could watch couples strolling on dates. They came as they pleased. We could not do anything about it. That all changed in the middle of the war when Allied ingenuity and technology completely turned the tables and turned the hunters into the hunted, so that by the end of the war, when the U-boats sailed from Germany, the statistical life expectancy of a U-boat crewman was barely 60 days. And if he was sent to America to wage war against us, 
he stood less than a one in ten chance of coming back. That's how much things turned over the course of just a year. Hmm. You also say that there is so much mystery that surrounds uh, the, the, the fate of, of many of these U-boats, you say, because most U-boats died beneath the water's surface. As many as 65 of them disappeared without explanation. In worlds of unsearchable water, U-boats made the perfect, unfindable graves. For all right. that, mm-hmm. go ahead. Yeah, their natural habitat was under the water and invisible. So many of them were sunk in battle, um, and so we knew what happened to them. There were people, witnesses, there was wreckage, but every so often they would disappear without a trace. Now, most of the time when that happened, it happened because a U-boat struck a mine and just sunk, or it had equipment failure and went down that way, so nobody really knew. Nobody was there, and maybe they made no radio communication because it was sudden. But in this case, here was a U-boat lying on the bottom of the ocean with a giant gaping wound to its control room section. It was a wound that naval weapons experts, when they saw photos and videos, said had happened from a direct torpedo hit. There could be no other explanation. But that made a huge mystery to Chatterton and Kohler. If a, if a torpedo had been fired, and especially if it had struck a U-boat, that certainly would have been recorded. They recorded so much as a gun being fired in the ocean. And yet, there was no record of anything occurring, not so much as a puff of smoke within 100 miles of this location, but here was this thing that was struck by a torpedo. Hmm. What's so interesting, I think, from this point on, is that their struggle to understand what U-boat was this and what happened to it, their struggle to discover the answer to that question takes two utterly different forms. On the one hand, they are digging through library archives, both here and in Germany, and they are continuing to dive down into this U-boat wreck at the bottom of the Atlantic, hoping to pull from the wreck specific information, some kind of artifact that will identify what ship this is. That's so interesting to me because uh, the two pursuits could not be more different from each other, but they were uh, each essential uh, to the ultimate answering of this question. Absolutely right. And they could not have imagined themselves in this role. They knew that they were great divers, but they had no idea about the kind of historians they would become, that they would be rubbing elbows with the greats in the, in the archives of Washington, D.C., and London, and Germany, that they would be developing contacts and sources throughout the world, that they would be entertaining theories and getting tips from people, uh, both legitimate and murky figures, that they would learn military German. This was just so out of the realm of their contemplation. These were guys who held full-time jobs and who were funding this quest by themselves out of their pockets. And yet, that on-land research was absolutely essential to what they did. And without it, they could never have thought to do what they did in the water. So it was a two-pronged attack that was so brilliant in its creativity and in its passion that it just it couldn't have been done by anyone else. If they hadn't done it, it would still be unsolved. Hmm. It's interesting. Uh, we have to stop and realize that we're talking about a U-boat wreck at the bottom of the ocean, which is why you couldn't go into the wreck and find paperwork, for instance, that would tell us what ship this was. And because it was a U-boat, there would not be a name emblazoned on the outside of it. This was a very plain-looking uh, vehicle, at least by this point in time. And so uh, the kind of artifact that one might pull from the wreck to, to give it that definitive uh, identification, that, that was no small matter. It wasn't, although they had to learn that because 
Both Chatterton and Kohler came very quickly to Chicago to see the U-505 U-boat on display at the Science and Industry Museum here. And they saw all kinds of identifying tags and documents and things. So they researched uh, these documents in the Museum of Science and Industry at the U-boat, and they, they should have been able to find these things. And yet this U-boat had been destroyed in the control room section where a lot of this evidence would have been. Still, there was ample reason to believe that they could pull any number of bits of identification from the wreck, and yet the wreck would not surrender its identity. Mm. It gave them many tantalizing clues, some of which seemed conclusive, all of which led to dead ends. Right. We should also mention something as well, because I think it says a whole lot about these particular divers and their priorities. They were told at one point, I don't remember who gave them this advice, that they might have luck identifying the ship if they searched the boots of some of those uh, crew members whose corpses were still, of course, uh, found in this wreck. That if they looked inside the boots, they would could potentially find information that could be of help in this in this quest. But that was something they were simply not willing to do. Yes, it's one of the most amazing parts of the story. And when I found that out and discovered that they wouldn't go through the boots or the pants pockets or shirts pockets, any number of which could contain a lighter with the U-boat's number engraved on it or a wristwatch or even a love letter home that would have survived, when I found that they were not willing to do that, it seemed astonishing to me. Why not just reach in your hand? Why keep risking your life and uh, going through this when you could just reach in and p potentially pull out an answer? And they said to me that this was their true moment in life, that they were on to doing something great, and they wanted to do it with beauty and excellence, and they never wanted to say to the families and loved ones of these sailors in Germany or to their own families or especially to themselves, that they had once done something great, but they'd done it in an ugly way. And so for that reason, they were not willing to disturb the remains or rummage through the possessions of these sailors. They would sooner die than do that. And when I learned that, uh, that was when I started to, to know that this book would truly be not just about a mystery U-boat, but even more about these two remarkable men at a remarkable time in their lives. Absolutely. Uh, we, we have to leave it to, uh, to readers to discover just all the paths which they take in this long, long journey, which does eventually lead to them successfully identifying exactly this U-boat. And they even so remarkably are able to connect with some of the descendants of the crew. So this story takes them on a quest which I'm sure they had no idea was going to involve so much and would be such a profound experience on so many different levels. No, no idea whatsoever. They thought it would be solvable in a few hours. Six years later, people had died. They'd lost their marriages, but they had also answered very fundamental questions about themselves and then had taken these answers to Germany, where the families and loved ones of these sailors were so, so grateful to them. I was with them myself and saw it. It was the most moving thing I'd seen. These people were grateful, not that Chatterton and Kohler told them where their loved ones had fallen, but that Chatterton and Kohler had told them that their loved ones had been found. And that was that kind of moment that Chatterton and Kohler had lived for and had been willing to die for, too. Hmm. The book is so remarkable, again called Shadow Divers, The True Adventure of Two Americans Who Risked Everything to Solve One of the Last Mysteries of World War II, published by Random House and its author, Robert Curson. Robert Curson, I congratulate you on a job well done. I loved this book, and uh, I appreciated the opportunity to speak with you about it today on The Morning Show. It was my great privilege to be with you. Thank you. 
It's really a, a, a true pleasure for me to be interviewed by someone uh, so capable and so interested. That's, that's a rarity for me. I appreciate it. Ah, well, certainly my pleasure.